Hello everyone, welcome to Luke Law. A quick deep dive into a folklore topic where I share some of the stories from around the world that have piqued my interest. This episode is a slightly odd one, as folklore and myth aren't quite the same thing and we're going to take a run at mythology today. Ish, it's a bit complicated. Folklore, mythology and legend are all connected, but with some commonly used distinctions between the three. Mythology is usually heavily codified with deep religious or cultural ties. Legend is typically based in history, although not always confirmed historical events that become mythologized. Folklore is a little sideways of all of this, much smaller in scope and localized typically, and frequently handed down in the oral tradition. Not even always as a spoken narrative, but frequently in songs or rhymes. Obviously, folklore has been getting steadily collected and written down more, as for decades if not centuries, technology has made keeping records easier and easier. It's the source of origin distinguishing it more from myth or legend. But you know what? It's all mine now. I've blurred the lines a lot already at times, but this episode I'm making a focused effort to draw a line. It's all folklore, and it's all on the table for the show. My personal favourite. I don't think this has ever actually come up on the show, or over on the main show either, but I do have an all-time favourite creature out of myth and story. That would be the griffin. One of Europe's strange chimeric creatures used in heraldic devices, the griffin is the front half of a giant eagle with the rear half of a lion, able to fly with the wings of its eagle half. And to say why I latched onto them is unusual. They were just kind of there when I was a kid. Growing up, the curtains of the kitchen were a deep red with a griffin pattern, and this just seeped into my growing mind, along with all the ghost stories and folklore I absorbed like a sponge to result in me being the oddball I am today. The griffin itself is a classical hybrid that comes from at least the Bronze Age, with various art from 3000 years ago onwards depicting them. As a fusion of the King of the Beasts and the King of the Birds, it was a symbol of power in both Egypt and Greece. Even as the spread of Christianity transformed the classical world, the church seemed to like this myth. The griffin in Christian countries became a symbol of either divine power, or as a guardian of the divine. Original stories had them a little simpler, if still majestic. Griffins loved gold, and should you be able to follow one back to its nest without ending up getting eaten, you could find collected gold in the nest itself as well as now knowing there is gold in the area to be mined. Griffins don't tend to be depicted as having human intelligence, like stories of dragons or a similar part lion creature from antiquity, the Sphinx, but they have pretty consistently been a wild if powerful animal. There's a fantasy friction trope of riding a griffin into battle, because it was an apex, death from above predator anyway, so you may as well point it at the enemy and let it carry you along in full armour, since it's strong enough to do that, and spectacular imagery shall follow. Technically, a griffin is always a part eagle, part lion. If you start putting together different animals, you get different mythological beasts. So if you put the front half of an eagle on the back half of a horse, you get a hippogriff. But, just for fun, I highly recommend you Google up trash griffins. If you're an active follower of the Ghost Story Guy's Instagram, you may have already seen these. The artist M. Tillery made a poster of mixtures made from two smaller common animals. So, a starling cat, a sparrow mouse, uh, a pigeon ratter among these. They're the kind of things that should definitely populate a fantasy world somewhere causing chaos. 
a half-raven, half-raccoon that would fight God for a half-eaten bagel out of a bin may well be my spirit animal. It's a fun art project to chase up. The Goddess Boy in Hades I don't think Cerebus, the guardian of the entrance to the underworld, gets their due. They turn up in a lot of places of fiction as a free-headed hound, but there's a lot more just below the surface here, as striking an image as that can be when they do turn up. For a start, Cerebus is no simple beast. Like a lot of the monsters in Greek mythology, Cerebus was more accurately a god or demigod, being the child of Typhus and Echidna. Based on this, they may have been able to talk as well, being a fully sentient and intelligent if monstrous looking divine being. The head count is a little lower free too. Some sources talk more of 50 or 100 heads, with Cerebus potentially being an incredibly wild Hydra style creature. Free hound heads are a very common depiction though, and that might not just simply be the artist's arm getting tired. One of the characteristics of Cerberus in some depictions is that they have a tail made of snakes, and even snakes in their mane, so the surplus head count could just be assorted surplus venomous heads. I say just like that isn't a terrifying addition, but yeah, Cerebus is more than just a dog with two spur heads. They're a terrifying demigod that means business. Speaking of business, in all of myth, only three people are known to have successfully got past Cerebus, all three being renowned heroes, which I call pretty damn good odds for that job given that they're making sure the realm of the dead is a one-way trip for all the souls of human history. Orpheus, on his quest to find and rescue Eurydice from the underworld, managed to charm Cerebus with his music. It was so beautiful that Cerebus stood aside and let Orpheus pass. On a less noble note, when Aeneas visited the underworld, it was with the help of a drugged honey cake that put Cerebus to sleep. Which speaks to the how nature of them, I guess. Like, spit that out? No, and it's asleep. This tale is where you get the phrase, a sop for Cerebus, describing bribing an uncooperative person into being quiet. Hercules, on one of many legendary drunken rampages, got into a fistfight with Cerebus, and proceeded to choke them out despite the biting snakeheads, before parading Cerebus about Greece, leaving fear and panic in his wake. Not too sure whose side I was on for that one, although the two did make a united front of terrifying Eurystheus, who was stupid enough to demand Hercules bring him Cerebus as one of his twelve labours, who then proceeded to run away and hide in a giant pot when Hercules returned triumphant. Still, Cerebus is definitely the goodest boy of the underworld, even with three mistakes to their name and an unflattering turn of phase attributed to them. Even the simpler depictions of just a free-headed hound are usually a fun standout in modern stories using them. The elephant-sized lizard in the room. If I'm going to go out of my way to blunder into specifically mythology, I don't think I can avoid talking about dragons. Dragons are hard to talk about for all their global ubiquity, perhaps because of it, what dragons exactly do you mean? There is a very broad East versus West approach to them, which proceeds to ignore other dragon-like depictions around the world, such as the horned serpents of Native American myth, renowned for their knowledge, and such examples as the South American feathered serpent god Quetzalcoatl. Let's keep it simple-ish with a broad Old World West v East focus. Western dragons tend to be six-limbed enormous lizards that breathe fire, two of those limbs being ginormous wings, although they also tend to be more poisonous than incendiary if you go back to some classical depictions. While easily predating Christianity, once the church had become the norm across Europe, dragons became linked to evil and even directly became manifestations of the devil in tales told about them. 
Tolkien with The Hobbit further codified what exactly a dragon means to Western pop culture in a similar way to Stoker with Vampires, taking assorted myth and folklore to condense down into an iconic image, redefining how dragons were seen going forwards. Powerful. Arrogant. Smart. Deadly. Most definitely fire-breathing and loving to hoard treasure. That they were evil was unquestionable in the stories of Middle-earth. But dragons were too awe-inspiring to remain that way. Dragons are just too popular in Western pop culture to stay frozen as what Smaug had defined them as. Sometimes animalistic, sometimes still evil and simple in their use, dragons are everywhere and generally pretty well loved even in their villain turns. They're no longer considered the front for the biblical devil at least. If there's a fantasy world, there's generally going to be a dragon, whether it's a subversion or an iconic interpretation. That trope is very likely to appear and be a crowd pleaser to boot. Eastern dragons, more specifically East Asia, are a little different though. Divine for starters, not demonic. Instead of the stocky, almost living tank depictions of the Western dragon, those of the East are live and serpentine. They represent flowing water and raging storms, as opposed to fire and lurking in underground layers. They represent knowledge, not greed. Arrogance still comes into it, whether from some stories or in the Chinese zodiac as a character flaw those born under the year of the dragon need to be aware of, but I suppose it's easy to be arrogant when you're overwhelmingly powerful. But there's an interesting global response to these ultimately very different depictions. Show someone a picture of Eva, and that person will name you a dragon with no problem. You are already dead. At the risk of having too much of a reptile theme this episode, I wanted to bring up a myth I've really enjoyed over the years, that of the Hydra. I feel some overexposure has lessened just how terrifying this concept for a monster is. It's poisonous. Not as in don't eat it, which probably don't do that either, but every breath it exhales is both poisonous and corrosive. Just breathing in where a Hydra breathes out is enough to melt a person. To get an obvious one out of the way, it's also a giant lizard. It sounds simple, but you know what isn't a giant lizard? Basically everything else. Then we get onto the really cool Hydra tricks. If you cut off one head, two more grow in its place. This is somewhat of a multiplication problem, as we've just gone over the small problem that this is a giant lizard that exhales acidic poison. Without strange gift of the gods magical weapons to back you up, you need to fight a Hydra the hard way. Cauterize the neck stumps as you cut off the heads, while the other heads are trying to eat you, while every breath you take may be a lungful of hydrohalitosis that melts you inside out. There's then the small problem of other magical properties the Hydra has. Plant Hydra teeth in the ground, get skeleton warriors from the underworld sprouting. Most people my age have very fond memories of Jason and the Argonauts, where a classic Ray Harryhausen fight follows after the teeth of the Hydra are planted and a prayer said over them. Spoilers for a classic over half a century old, those skeletons kick everyone's ass. Could you imagine the mod of the military blowing up a Hydra with a missile, then all the teeth blown into the floor sprout skeletons to fight, and then the Hydra they only fought was dealt with managed to regenerate into an even bigger monster while the skeletons distracted them? Where is this movie? I kind of need it. I may need to write that idea up as a spec script horror feature. Update from Future Luke, I have begun writing a horror spec script called Hydra.
That's all for this episode. I've joked a little today about tackling myth head-on, but the show has already been open to a wider focus anyway, with no small number of figures of myth hiding in previous episodes. But consider yourself warned that we're planning on going to some stranger places this year too, especially on some guest host spots currently in the early stages of development. Both Cerberus and Asian Dragons already have an entry in Wanda Frazier's Dark Arts series online, with showcase blurbs provided by me. Definitely go check those out, and I'll see if Wanda is interested in adding a griffin or a European dragon to the series. Uh, no promises there, but I'll see if I can nudge Wanda's muse on these two. I definitely want a griffin. If you do want to contact me, then there's the show's dedicated email, lukelawgsg at gmail.com, and the general show email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Both myself and the main show are really easy to find on Facebook and Twitter if you want to make day-to-day contact, as well as a very active Instagram account a lot of the community gets involved with. Uh, Luke Law's own Instagram account is now up and running. Still very open to getting uh, more uh, content suggestions with that one. We're, we're working it out, but there are more and more posts and some really cool stuff already on there. If you want to support the show directly, definitely check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. It'll get you access to all sorts of GSG goodies at different tiers, my incentive being that Luke Law episodes go out to patrons a little early. As ever though, the absolute best thing anyone can do to support the show is to give it a listen. Share this around if you think you might know someone who may be interested, leave a review if you get the chance to help signal boost me, and most of all, I simply hope you enjoy what I'm doing here. Goodbye for now. Saving money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big-